Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. If you appreciate what we're doing here, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash politics and religion. Going forward, we'll be offering all kinds of exclusive content for our Patreon subscribers, and we sure appreciate it. Your support through Patreon really helps us continue to have the conversations like the one we're having today with Catherine Manfrey. Catherine Manfrey is a business and strategy advisor and consultant with an MBA from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and a BA in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies from NYU. She's advised private and public sector organizations on a range of business and management challenges and is passionate about solving the hardest, most difficult problems. So before I go any further, I have a Jewish mother from New York. How do we solve that problem? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so just to, uh, to finish, uh, she, uh, Catherine lived in Cairo, Egypt for four years where she learned Arabic met her husband, and became an Egyptian street food connoisseur. And she is now the author of the new book, Not There Yet, Living Through Egypt, Love, and Uncertainty. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great. And thanks so much, Corey. Glad to be here. So no no offerings yet on the Jewish mother from New York. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to take a hard pass at solving whatever that challenge is. <laughs> Much comedy and much tragedy has been written, volumes, in fact. Um, so actually, in all seriousness, I'd like to start by asking you, what does the song Sut al Huroye, I think I said that close enough, almost, the voice of freedom mean to you? Sut al um was a song written during the Egyptian Revolution about the Egyptian Revolution. Um, if you look it up on YouTube, the, the music video has a, a number of images and videos from Tahrir Square during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. The reason that song is really personal to me is not only was it written about a time period that I lived through in Egypt, but it actually was my husband and I's first uh, dance song that we chose for our wedding. When the Egyptian revolution broke out, we were about six weeks away from getting married in the United States, although we both lived in Egypt and he is Egyptian. And so the song became uh, a way for us to both express our intercultural relationship, but also to honor uh, a really significant period that we had just lived through together. Wow.
Yeah, I watched that video and it was just, uh, even though I don't understand the language, it, it's there's something that's transcendent about the music and the imagery and just knowing the bit about the history uh, that that a lot of which I learned from reading your book. So yeah, really touching and, you know, and then reading your account of the um, how you chose it for the wedding was really touching. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you. So speaking of the book, you shared in the book, it sounds like 9-11 was, uh, as you would call it, a, a big event for you. Uh, but specifically during some formative years, in terms of your awareness of what was going on in the world, your eagerness to learn about uh, other people, other people's motivations, could you talk a little bit more about how 9-11 shaped you and, and changed the course of your life? Absolutely. So uh, this will be revealing my age, but I was a high school freshman when 9-11 happened in 2001. And you know, when you go through high school, there are so many days or so many days in life where the, the blurriness of the day to day of our routines just kind of go together. But 9-11 for me was a day that I can still picture the people that I was sitting in class with. I can remember exactly the teacher who was taking my homeroom when the second plane hit. I can remember many of the conversations of that day in a really vivid way that I'm sure a lot of people can recall exactly where they were when they first heard the news. And as I write about in the book, you know, the first reaction of a lot of my friends, and this was, of course, before social media, most of us did not have cell phones, smartphones didn't exist yet. So our social media, if you will, was talking to one another, as I write about in the book. Um, and our first reaction was just disbelief. We just didn't believe that anyone could have done something like this intentionally. And the reason I mention that is I think the one of the most jarring things I remember about that day was simply that people could have planned to do something so violent and so horrendous. And that was real, that um, acknowledgement of what had happened, I think was really catapulted a, a sort of stream of questions that I had. Where were these people from? Why did they do it? What was Islam? What was Saudi Arabia? What were all of these new words that for a 14 year old were, were foreign? And I think that it was um, a really pivotal moment because as I write about the book in the book, it really changed the trajectory of how I started to think about my future and what I was interested in studying in college and, and really was a big part of the reason why I ended up in Egypt uh, several years later in college. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Uh, but I, I also, at this time, you met someone new around this time who's actually become a lifelong friend. Something you said about uh, what you shared in common was we both wanted to have careers in public service or nonprofits, something that would allow us to change the world. And that just really struck me. I'd love for you to tell us more about this friend and how you both knew something so profound about what you wanted to do with your life as high schoolers. <laughs> uh, so my my best friend Arfa, uh, who is is just one of the kindest, most incredible people I have ever met, she and I she uh, joined my school uh, the following year after 9/11. And one of the things we actually initially had in common was we had both been new. I had moved to Florida when I was 12. She had just moved there as a, as a sophomore or junior in high school, and we bonded over. At first, all of the things that anyone bonds over in high school, we bonded over boys and music and gossip and classwork. Um, but eventually that friendship created a baseline of trust that Arfa, uh, you know, so Arfa and her family are from Pakistan and I 
was able to, through that friendship, learn a lot about Islam and a lot about the culture and was able to, and ARFA allowed me to ask a lot of sort of Islam 101 questions about um, where the what the religion was all about and what they believed. Um, and I think that that relationship really opened my eyes to a whole new part of the world that I, of course, had sort of started hearing about through 9-11, but seeing it through her eyes gave me this very different perspective than I was hearing on the news. It was one of kindness and compassion and love and humanity. And in, in getting to know her and her family, it made it impossible to believe some of the more hateful things that were being said about the entire religion in the news media. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that's sort of the basis of how I view a lot of difficult discussions is really starting with that foundation of trust and empathy, because I think it allows us to have some really difficult, but um, honest and genuine conversations. Okay. So now I have a few follow-up questions. <laughs> One, uh, this is very, very profound and important. What was 15-year-old Catherine, what kind of music was 15-year-old Catherine listening to at that time? <laughs> So 15-year-old Catherine and current day Catherine actually listen to very similar music, oh, which is okay. almost embarrassing to admit. But uh my I was a, a huge dashboard confessional and Blink 182 fan in high school. Um Arfa, as I write about in the book, is a big fan of rap music. So uh one of our biggest points of contention was which radio station to listen to or which CD to listen to. Um for your younger viewers, CDs are things that play music. We used to put them in cars just to make sure everyone understands what that is. Um, but yes, I was a, a big emo and ska fan in high school. Wow. Now I feel really dated, you know, because I'm thinking, <laughs> man, when I first started driving, I had cassette tapes, you know, my, my older cousin had like, you know, what, I forget what are they called? Eight something, uh, uh, eight tracks. Eight tracks. Yeah. They yeah. had eight, <laughs> you know, and now we're all going retro. My son has a, um, he has vinyl. He loves, oh, there's wow. certain music that he loves to listen to specifically on vinyl. I mean, what is old is new again. Yeah, yeah. There is a difference. There are certain, because I got into jazz. Like once I started going gray, I guess it's kind of mandatory. <laughs> no, but I started, you know, when I, when you listen to like Miles Davis, uh, his blue period, late 50s, man, it really does sound different on vinyl. But that's uh, maybe uh, for another day. An, a serious question though, having uh, befriended Arfa and her family, were you... Did you begin to become aware of certain, maybe not prejudices, but at least blind spots that you might have had? That's a great question. You know, I I remember just really being kind of like an empty book at that point. I, I think I had, you know, of course, heard the rhetoric on the news. I even in high school was fairly aware of politics and current events. It was something my friends and I talked about a lot. And it was a topic that, you know, my friends and I all discussed after 9-11, I think, as our way to sort of cope and understand what had happened. And so I don't really remember having um, a lot of preconceived notions because our community that I grew up in in Northeast Florida did not have many, if any, Muslim families. I didn't have any personal connections with anyone. Arfa was really the first person I ever met who that I remember being Muslim um, in my life up until that point. And so I what I knew, though, was what I heard on the media. And and I, I even then, even without knowing Arfa, there was a very large part of me that just felt like it, 
it couldn't be true about everyone. There was no way that some of the rhetoric that was happening could possibly extend to all 1 billion or plus Muslims around the globe, which was a fact that I stuffed into my head at some point right after 9-11. And so I think that it really awakened a curiosity to learn. And I think that, you know, that curiosity to learn and understand others is something I've tried to carry through with me throughout my life. And I, you know, thinking about current day, I think is something that we could all use maybe a bit more, more of in trying to understand one another. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. So having spent time with ARFA as, as a teen in those days, were you, did you pick up on any soft prejudices or bigotry? Uh, just being with her, going going into a Seven Eleven or uh, whatever. <laughs> Is there Wawa down? I don't, what do we? You know what are the? You know what I mean? Yes, uh, I think at the time we did not have the luxury of a Wawa, especially <laughs> in my like a very small county where you know Walmart was kind of like the place to see and be seen. So um, yeah, so there's there is a story that I tell in the book about one of the again, as a, as a, as a white woman, there were not so many times that I had to deal with prejudice towards myself. Um, there were maybe some times where in retrospect, I can imagine that there were some gender-based, uh, interactions, but again, as a person, as, as someone who is white, there's a certain amount of privilege you carry through with you in the world. And one of them I think is not experiencing often firsthand or even secondhand some of the prejudice and hate that people uh, direct at one another. And so there was a day, again, a day that sort of stands out to me in the sea of days when I was a teenager, where Arfa and I were walking into our high school and a school administrator called out to her from across the hall to give her a message from one of her teachers and uh, referred to her as Osama's niece. Ooh. And, yeah, it was... Um, in the moment, it took me a second to realize what who she was talking about. Arfa sort of realized immediately who was being referred to. And, you know, we we moved on from the, the woman and and I talk about in the book how my first reaction was to sort of leap at the sort of cosmic injustice of what had just happened and how shocked I was that someone could say something like this in public, in front of people with 0% shame. And Arfa's reaction was so different from mine. Her reaction was one, one not of shock at all. Um, one of incredible discomfort, of course, and embarrassment, but she wasn't surprised. And that opened the door for a series of conversations that her and I had over the years of our friendship on the multitude of kinds of comments like that, that she and her family had experienced, particularly after 9-11, but even before. And so I think that was, I, I, I often think about that incident as one of my major wake-ups to the, the types of comments that many people from different backgrounds experience on a routine basis. And frankly, it was Although I didn't call it this at the time, but it was, I think, one of the first awakenings to the privilege I have as, as someone who doesn't always have to deal with those kinds of comments um, in front of me. Well, it seems that you have had to deal with them a little bit more directly. I mean, not even before you and your, your now husband um, moved here to the States, I think you, I, I recall you telling us, sharing a story. I think you moved back for business school and you were apart for a time. And there are some um, examples of, 
I don't know if you want to call it a soft prejudice, but the kinds of prejudice that someone might might slough off as saying, oh, I was just joking, like a um, someone who said, oh, your terrorist boyfriend and constantly referred to him that way. But I, I'm curious what other types of examples you and once you did move here, whether it was that kind of um, uh, prejudice or other more blatant forms of uh, hateful bigotry that you faced. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I mean, this was all not me being facing it. It was, it was really, you know, my husband in some instances, Arfa and others, I think I, you know, I've, I've, I've toyed in my head a lot about whether or not people feel more comfortable saying the things that they really feel when they don't think anyone of that group is listening or is around, or if it's the opposite, where sometimes people mean and intend to be hateful. But I tell this one story where I was sitting in an airport and overheard a conversation yeah. where, um, you know, two women were talking and one was, um, it was in Canada. And so one of the women was sort of like, you know, native Canadian and another woman had immigrated there from a country in Europe. And the woman from Canada was, was talking about how she felt that Muslims, particularly who she had called out, uh, were refusing to assimilate and how they were not a group that they should, that Canada should be letting into the United, to, to Canada. You could imagine the same conversation happening anywhere in the U S it's not anything specific to Canada that just happened to be the airport I was in. Yeah. And in the moment I, you know, my blood boiled because of course I'm thinking about my husband. I'm thinking about my sister-in-law. I'm thinking about our I'm thinking about all of my other friends who are taxpayers who are contributors to society and are just great all around people that anyone would be lucky to have in their country, frankly. And um, in the moment, I just got up and sort of yelled at them and told yeah. them, like, what are you talking about? Like, you are wrong. Like, this is a totally hateful and shameful thing to be thinking. And yeah. uh, I don't think I changed any minds that day. <laughs> uh, I think probably more of it felt cathartic. Yeah. Uh, but I also believe that it is important to be an ally, even in the moments when no one else is watching, to stand up for these kinds of issues and to tell people when they're out of line on something, because it's not that that one woman is going to like change her mind, but I do think that it may awaken a, a, a bit of shame and self-reflection maybe on, on her part to think a little bit more about what she says she believes. Yeah, not to um, belabor this point, I, but I, I don't think we can belabor it too much. Um, it's a really important one. In fact, it, it strikes at the heart of the pro of this very project. We want to learn how to talk, speak to each other across our differences, and sometimes have to persuade folks about about their blind spots. There was one story that you shared in the book about. Uh, I think you and Mohammed were on a trip to Alaska. Do I remember that right? Yeah, and you were right. having dinner uh, with this couple that. That maybe they just had too much wine or something, but your husband dealt with it like it was a, and it's, it, it was a class. It was a master class, and this is a good, really. And but at the end, there was like the mic drop moment at the end. Could you share that story? Absolutely. And I will say, my husband definitely is a master class in how to deal with this. He is uh, much more calm than I am sometimes in these situations. But we were having dinner, like you said, with this couple from Australia, and. Um, and they, we had this lovely dinner, like, you know, we were just talking about our trip and all the great places that they had been. They were sort of, you know, routine cruisers. We're not, we don't usually take cruises, but it was Alaska. So of course that's what you do. And they, at some point in the evening, 
started talking for some reason about this, um, about some of the immigration issues going on in Australia, where they were having a lot of migrants from certain Muslim majority countries trying to enter the country. And they, similarly to the last story I shared, sort of went on this rant about how these Muslim immigrants should not be allowed in the country and the Australian government should be doing more to dissuade them from coming. And I, of course, was getting very upset. My husband realized that. Uh, and he, instead of saying something at first, goaded them with some additional questions. Why don't you like Muslim immigrants? What kinds of challenges do you have with them in their country? And, and sort of got them to reveal more and more of their prejudices. We had not introduced ourselves in terms of our names. And so finally we got up to leave and my husband looked at them and said, by the way, we haven't introduced my, ourselves. This is my wife, Catherine, and my name is Muhammad. <laughs> and you could tell from their faces that they realized that he was Muslim and yeah. they had just spent the better part of an hour eviscerating his <laughs> religion. Oh it was, it was a really good moment. Oh, it was man. a really good moment. Yeah. Yeah. But it takes so much discipline and restraint as well as frankly, it takes a lot of grace, you know, to, to be able to um, have that sort of patience with folks, you know? Uh, yes, it is. I will say it's probably not a grace I have achieved. Uh, he is a far better person than I for being able to have that kind of calm and discipline <laughs> under pressure for sure. Oh, man. Well, I, I want to reflect back on your time in Egypt for a second. Um, you, you were there for a number of years and able to absorb much more about the culture and the history. And there was something that was really eye-opening for me uh, that I'd love you I'd love for you to elaborate about, you said, Egyptian women had many role models for fighting both the broader systems of repressive government and the inequality they experienced in their country. So I'd love for you to give us some examples of Egyptian women who were leaders from Cleopatra to the 20th century and even you know those involved in the contemporary women's movement. Absolutely. And I, I just want to start out by saying that one of the reasons I felt very strongly about starting with the very powerful and strong Egyptian women who had led their own movement was I think there can often be a tendency to put an American frame on issues around the world. And I, I write about this a little bit less explicitly, but that when the Me Too movement came out, which was, a, which was an important and vital movement in the United States to have, that a lot of other women's rights movements around the world started to get framed in that light, that this country is having their own Me Too movement, or that country is making progress because of Me Too. And again, Me Too was, I mean, I'm a supporter of it. I, as I talk about in the book, I'm a survivor of sexual harassment. It was very important for that to happen in our country. But I also think that it takes some agency away from women in other countries to not first acknowledge the fact that they have had their own longstanding movements, that they have shed their own blood, sweat, and tears in moving forward. And so um, when I, I have a few chapters in the book about women's rights, and I wanted to start with a, a sort of a, a history lesson, if you will, of different women in Egyptian history who have fought for either broader democratic reforms or for women's or women's specific um, rights. 
And so there are just a couple of names to throw out there for your listeners so that they can Google and, and learn a little bit more. Um, so Hoda Sharawi is one name, um, was uh, active in the early 1900s, in the 1920s, 30s. And um, she founded uh, an Egyptian women's rights organization, but she also was very active in democratic in broader uh, pushes for democracy within Egypt. Another name is Noelle El Saldawi, who um, my husband actually ha had the pleasure of meeting before she passed. And she had been a, a really big advocate of a number of topics, but her particular one was uh, female genital mutilation. And she advocated for decades, wrote books, was arrested. I, I mean, she really put her life on the line for this cause. And eventually they, they did pass a law in Egypt uh, making that practice illegal. And so there were... Other, I mean, there, the other movement that was happening when I was there, though, was a pushback against street harassment. And there were a number of women that led the charge there, some nameless, some that were, you know, sort of were on the consciousness of uh, Egypt at the time. But there were a number of women that in 2008, when I was there, were, were really building momentum to stop street harassment in Egypt, which had become a really, really big problem. And, and at least was when I left in 2012. Yeah, I didn't realize how pervasive it was, uh, but also, you know, your experience with, with it, it was, you know, hard to read, let alone, I'm sure, hard to experience. Uh, so if it's okay, uh, there, there was an incident that happened at a friend's wedding. Uh, would you mind sharing that with us? Absolutely. And again, I just, I want to put another disclaimer out there yeah, sure. that all of this, I, I mean, as, as you may hear, as I describe this could easily happen anywhere. And mm -hmm. I, I try to make that point pretty clear in the book too, um, because I think the last thing I want is for people to take away that Egypt is somehow a more scary place than it is actually to be a woman in America walking around the streets at night. But I, so in Egypt, I had as many, if not most women have in Egypt. Uh, per multiple reports that I cite in my book, experience almost daily street harassment. Sometimes that was sort of more benign on the spectrum of, of harassment from catcalls and elevator eyes. Sometimes it was much scarier, like people following you home or trying to grab you in the middle of the street. And all of those incidents, I would always spend hours agonizing over what I could have said differently, how I could have responded more quickly, what I could have done to make sure that the, the person doing the, the harassment knew that it was wrong. And there was this one incident that I describe at length in the book that really was me finally being able to have all the pieces click together to try to bring someone to justice. I was standing outside of um, a church where one of my colleagues was getting married and I had already been uncomfortable with wearing a dress. I often, um, you know, almost always would cover my shoulders all the, almost to my, um, my wrists. And this was a celebratory occasion. So I was wearing a dress and my shoulders were not covered. And I say that only because I was very uncomfortable already standing there. And as I'm standing there watching the bride go into the church, a man comes behind me and, and grabs my butt very, very hard. And as I look up, he winks at me as he's walking away. Like he knew what he did was wrong. And he was trying to make sure that I knew that it was him that did it. And so I ran after him in my heels, 
grabbed his shirt. He was not a small guy. And I started yelling thief, which is what my friends and I would yell if someone did something like this to us because it gets more attention. And a couple of my colleagues noticed, came over to kind of condense the story. We dragged him to the police station and I pressed charges against him. And unfortunately, the story doesn't really end there uh, because then I started getting phone calls from his family repeatedly and found out that the police had actually given his family my personal contact information, my passport number, my address, my phone number. And so I had to actually move for a period of time to another apartment to just make sure that they were not going to like show up at my door one night. And so it was for me, it, the, the biggest thing from that experience that I take away was really the importance again, of trying to say something, even when it's really hard, even when, you know, you might not even be believed. I felt like even if it was one incident, just that one incident of someone saying something and trying to really do the right thing and get justice just felt really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, man, it's the trauma can be compounded um, because many of us come to believe that uh, something bad happens and there are all these systems in place um, to heal us if we've been harmed, uh, but also to that the system is set up for justice. Right. That's not always the case. No. And I, you know, again, back to the Me Too movement in the US, I think what we saw is exactly that point is that the system is not set up in some cases to deal with this issue. And it takes the bravery and courage and persistence of people that are already survivors of a trauma to really advocate for themselves and to push change. And, you know, that, that chapter in the book, um, there were a lot of moments in the book that were hard to write about that chapter for me was by far the most difficult to write about. It's not, it's not something I have been uh, shy about talking about, but certainly reliving not just the one incident that gets the most airtime in the book, but some of all of those little incidents. I mean, I just remember feeling sometimes like I couldn't even leave my apartment because I was so anxious about what was going to happen next and who was going to try to grab me or who was going to try to say something or what person I was going to have to avoid on the street. And it was that constant anxiety. Some of it was real. Some of it was imagined that really made it a really difficult time for me. Um, and I, I love Egypt. I just want to say that again. Like I, I had, you know, I, my husband's Egyptian. I, my family's Egyptian. I have a lot of love and affection for Egypt, but the street harassment really was a big challenge. And I also think though, that there are a lot of parallels to our system in the U S also that does not make it easy for women to come forward and get justice either. Yeah. And the, it sounds like the PTSD, it's like your brain has to go into fight or flight mode, but that fight or flight mode can't shut off. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I, as I talk about in the book, I, I, at least personally would go through waves of fight and waves of flight. And I would say there's probably like a third one, which is like just hermit crab. Like I would just, you know, hole up in my apartment and like not leave. I I guess maybe that's a version of flight, but I think hide maybe is the third one. Um, so it, yeah, it was definitely like a constant cycle. 
So coincidentally, it, I was reading that part in the book when the protests erupted in Iran. Uh, so I, I just want to read a summary for folks who aren't reading uh, or up to date on the headlines. Something really important in our world is happening right now. Or if folks are listening to this a year from now, uh, you know, after we've recorded this, just to summarize, uh, this is taken from the New York Times. Protests in Iran were set off after the death in police custody of Masa Amini, uh, 22, uh, 22-year-old woman, on September 16th. Ms. Amini had been detained over claims that she had violated Iran's headscarf law, which mandates the covering of hair for adult women. The demonstrations quickly expanded to dozens of cities in Iran and evolved into the most widespread challenge to the country's authoritarian government since 2009, bringing a brutal crackdown from security forces. Uh, it goes on uh, just real quickly here. The authorities in Iran said on Monday that would be uh, what's today, the 26th, I guess that is, that 41 pro protesters had been killed, more than 1,200 arrested. Human rights groups said that the toll was much higher, but that was difficult to pinpoint as the government has restricted cell phone and internet service, some of which you experienced actually too. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists has called for the release of more than 23 journalists, it said, had been detained since the start of the protests. Now, as we spoke about before we hit record, I understand that Iran is nowhere near Egypt, uh, maybe in the same general wide region, but um, there are echoes of what happened in Egypt when you were there, as well as it. it uh, there are some harmonies with what's bubbling up in our own country. So you being someone who grew up in the United States, someone who spent time and uh, met your husband in Egypt, uh, I was wondering how what's happening and how this is affecting you and what your reaction is. Absolutely. Well, as, as a woman, I will just say it is so often women needing to put their lives and their bodies on the line for what is right. And we see this around the world. Uh, I think this is just one more example of that. You know, I think there's a few echoes of, of what I experienced in Egypt and, and to your point, what is going on, I think in, in some ways in the US also. I think that one is it, events like this really just remind me of how lucky we are to have the democratic system that we have. You know, I start the book on January 6th. And the reason I do is because one of my biggest lessons learned from Egypt is how fragile democracy can be. Um, you know, Egypt, as I say, flirted with democracy for a period of time after Mubarak resigned in 2011. And it was hard. And, you know, the it, there was both uncertainty in the process of democratic elections, as well as the process, uh, as well as the uncertainty of the outcomes of the election. And we are so lucky in this country that with the exception of 2020, often our process is boring and behind the scenes and we never have to think about it. It just happens and the outcomes are exciting. And that's what we can focus on. And I think one of the reasons 2020 hit so hard for me was because the process became the exciting thing as well as the outcome. And I think that in Iran, they are similarly looking for democratic reform. That's what they are, are asking for and demanding. And I think that there is a lesson there for us in America to appreciate not just what we have, but what we need to protect and what we need to nurture and what we need to grow. Because democracy is not 
a static object. It is an evolving living thing. It is fickle. It is changing. And we can't just sit back and expect that democracy is just going to happen for us. So I would hope that if people take one thing away from what's going on in Iran, what happened in Egypt in 2011, is that we need to protect and preserve and be alert to the dangers of, to our democracy on a routine basis, even though we are all very busy and it is very hard to add protecting democracy to the very long list of things we have to do in our day. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Egypt in 2011. How long had you been living? You Because you were living in Cairo, right, at that time, uh, but you, you weren't in Cairo the day things erupted. How long were you living in Egypt at, at, by that time? I had been in Egypt about two and a half years by the time the protests broke out. Yeah. Now, so I, I want to say, share a quote. Um, incredibly, that day had started with nervousness about running a half marathon and ended with nervousness about our physical security because of the protests. The day did not end there. So that's it's a crazy story. But can you tell us what happened and what, you know, why you were where you were and what that was all like for you? Yeah, this really speaks to it is hard to know how serious things are until they're already way past being serious. Yeah. Um, I, I also kind of write about how, you know, you don't know that a day is going to become shorthand for a global changing event when you're brushing your teeth in the morning. Like it's just not what you're thinking about. Um, but my colleague and friend and I had been planning to run this half marathon in upper Egypt in, in the city of Luxor for months. We had been training for it relentlessly and we were not going to let a couple of protests, which had started just a couple of days before we were flying to Luxor, stop us from hitting our half marathon goals. It just, you know, and you have to also remember is at the time, protests were not legal. They were not allowed by Egyptian security forces. There were many instances of Egyptians trying to protest and they would swiftly be you know, dealt with by the security forces. And so we just never, we did not think that this was going to become a thing. So we fly to Luxor, we run this half marathon thinking everything is fine. And when we get back from running the half marathon successfully, I might add, um, it, takes a, <laughs> it, it takes us a couple hours, but we realized that the cell phone network had been shut off. And it took us a few more hours after that to realize that the Egyptian government had also shut the internet off in the entire country. If you look at um, reports that were done at the time, Egypt managed to cut off like 90, 95 plus percentage of its internet traffic in a day. I mean, if you talk about censorship, that is probably one of the most extreme forms of censorship is literally cutting off the internet. And that day, which I talk about in, in a gross amount of detail in the book, was probably one of the longest days of my entire life, both going from the highs and adrenaline of running a half marathon and thinking everything was fine. I was about to get married. We were just on this last you know, kind of girls trip before that happened. And then having kind of our whole lives just take a really dramatic turn. And I mean, not just my life, I mean, the, the Egypt's life as a country took a dramatic turn uh, on that, on the, the, those set of days. And I, you, so you were planning your wedding. I love that while a revolution is breaking out all around you, this is like the most Jewish mother moment of the entire book. Your mother was asking about like seating arrangements or something. <laughs> I, uh, so my mom is Catholic. So apparently she yeah. has something in common with your mom. There. 
but my mother, who I love dearly and actually helped plan most of our wedding because it was in Florida. I was in Egypt. I was, I, you know, she helped plan most of the wedding, but I'm, you know, trying to figure out like, how do we go get some food? Because there's a tank sitting outside of our hotel. And my mom is like, but we need to tell the florist how many flowers we need. I was to say that I was not in a frame of mind to answer those questions is an understatement. Uh, The way you described it though, in the book is like, you gave the most diplomatic answer. I'm like, I don't think I have the, yeah, I forget how you said it, but it was like, you were so diplomatic. I don't think I would have been nearly that diplomatic. So good for you. I mean, I might've been generous to myself in the book about my reaction. My mother (laughs) probably remembers my reaction a little differently is my suspicion. They'll rewrite it differently for the movie because that'll be the comedy scene. It was uh, it only, it, well, just to tell one more story that was a bit of a comedic relief in the book was I talk about how we had gone to a market to try to get some food. And this was probably a day or two after we sort of got stuck in Luxor. And my friend and I went in and we asked the, the shopkeeper, like, do you have, you know, like a Swiss army knife or like something that we could use as a weapon? And just in case, like, you know, someone gives us a hard time in the street, we don't know what's going to happen. And he, of course, did not. And so we instead bought a can of bug spray and <laughs> carried it around with us everywhere we went. In fact, when we finally got on a plane to leave, the airport security had to like pry it from our hands. Oh. We were like, this bug spray had become like our uh, safety blanket to just yeah. try to get through the day. I don't know what we thought we were going to do with a can of bug spray, but that for some reason made us feel better in the moment. All right. All right. Yeah. You, there's the things you could, it was like your, uh, what, what did he call it? The, the guy who do anything with like a, a staple, a, a paper clip and, and scotch tape or something like oh, that. Mac- MacGyver? Is that MacGyver. There yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now on a serious note, you, you describe the Egyptian government's well-worn playbook to combat dissent. Um, so can you describe that playbook and how they were deploying it in those first days of, of protest? Absolutely. So, you know, there, like I had mentioned, there were other instances before the revolution of people trying to protest and trying to make progress, uh, whether that was through the streets or whether that was through elections. So it wasn't like the 2011 revolution was the first time that Egyptians were trying to change the course of their their government. So often when these protests would happen, um, there was a a counter narrative that would play out in the media, blaming the protests on foreigners or the, you know, political opposition party du jour. And so there was always a a bit of a pivot away from the actual core issues. And given that the Egyptian government was able, you know, controlled most of the media and what was seen on TV, they were able to do that to a a fairly effective degree, I would say. Uh, The other thing is, is, you know, pure violence. So whether it's roughing people up to try to break up protests, arresting people en masse, I mean, there was a very rapid and often uh, very large group of security forces that would infiltrate whatever protests to try to, you know, uh, both break it up, but also to send a message to people in the future to not do that again. And then, and, and so those were really the two big mechanisms. And then of course there was, uh, was censorship over what was actually being able to be discussed, uh, in the public square, you know, whether that was the media or whether that was the literal public square and all of those tactics were, 
included in the 2011 revolution. It's just that the sheer weight of the number of Egyptians that flooded the streets made it so that those became ineffective in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing that today too, uh, where there is a pervasiveness of public discourse of information, even today, it, it wasn't the case 10 years ago, but today shutting down the internet, there are satellites, you know, Elon Musk puts up a satellite to sort of circumvent the country systems. And that's the way that a lot of Iranian women, women right now are communicating mm -hmm. and getting their information. But you know, there's something else. Uh, so, so certain aspects of what you just discussed, are really eerie uh, to me, um, manipulating the media, Mm -hmm. finding scapegoats, uh, real or mostly imagined, actually, the uh, sparking political violence. There sounds like what's kind of going on and, and almost embraced by an increasing number of people here in the States. I would agree with that assessment. And I think when I wrote that part of the book, uh, I, I will say it was not unintentional to have the reader take away certain parallels to use your word eerie in comparison. And, uh, you know, I think that was really one of the big reasons that I wrote the book was because some of the eeriness between what I witnessed in pre-revolution Egypt, what I saw in uh, some, in some of the incidents that happened after uh, the revolution, they, you know, like I mentioned, there's a part of me that that is my big takeaway of the Egyptian revolution is the desire to protect our democracy in the U.S. And part of that protection, I think, is trying to use my story to help people see these parallels that I don't think that we want to be seeing because those are, you know, trying to create alternative narratives or, or alternative realities is a really dangerous thing for a country to be able to come together and have one national dialogue. You know, I talk about um, early on in the book how I feel like America is going through a midlife crisis right now, where we're really trying to figure out who are we trying to be and who are we trying to be together, most importantly. And I don't think that we have broad agreement right now. And in fact, I think that there is divergence um, of an extreme amount in, in what that end goal is. And I think that that's really where we need to be able to start talking to each other and having the relationships and having the empathy and having the intellectual curiosity to try to understand one another. Because if we're not able to find some amount of common ground, it's going to be really difficult for us to get through life together as one whole united country, I think. So having lived in Egypt during 2011, and you were already back here. Um, I think you already started your family. Uh, the election of 2020 happens. Were, did you see an understanding the precariousness of democracy and democratic institutions? Did you see January 6th happening before it happened? I mean, I'm not omniscient. So, uh, <laughs> but I think that. I think, look, I think that all of us could see some of the writing on the wall in the months leading up to January 6th. Uh, I mean, I think all of the discourse that led us to that and, and frankly, all of the discourse since, you know, the big lie and trying to uh, negate the outcome of that election was there for us to see. I think that because we frequently inhabit 
separated worlds in a lot of ways. I think it was easy for some of us to maybe not believe that it was going to have the outcome it did on January 6th. So, I mean, I think there were definitely moments in the years leading up to that, that there, my husband and I would look at each other and be like, there's, this can't be what's going on right now. Right. Like this, this feels a little too familiar to that period in 2000, before 2011, like the lead up to Mubarak finally resigning. But I think there was frankly a part of us that didn't want to believe it could ever happen here. We, as I write about in the book, you know, Elections should be boring in process and exciting in outcome. And that is how it has always been in the U.S. And I just don't think I could have imagined that it would have been any different. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was I was watching this uh, comedy. It was a, a farce that was made in 2018 and it was about Donald Trump. And it was um, it was kind of a, a fictional projecting the future, the, the near future. And they're what they were projecting. They made this in 2018 that he simply wouldn't concede the election. And it was supposed to be a farce. But watch. It was a 22 minute sitcom. And I I, um, I got to watch the other. I think there are two or three other episodes that they made. But it was scary how accurate it was supposed to be farce like this could never happen, like to a T to the way they depicted uh, Ivanka's reaction. And like some of it, what really was sort of funny, they took it to an extreme. But like. The whole thing was supposed to be taken to the extreme, um, but also, on a, you know, like in more uh, other instances, you know, I was listening to folks uh, in independent political media analysis um, that during that time leading up to the election, after the election, and then even um, he was still on Twitter, uh, Trump was still on Twitter in December saying, everyone come to, you know, this rally on January 6th, going to be huge or whatever words. And I remember, I think it was Charlie Sykes in particular who said, that's not going to go well. Like there were certain people who knew, you know, that was a little bit closer in time. Uh, but within two or three weeks of, of that date happening, there were certain people that were saying, I- I'm not being hyperbolic here. This is not going to go well. So um, a lot of us, but also I was just curious about your perspective because you actually lived through it um, and understood it. So I so appreciate you uh, being so generous with your thoughts and your experiences. Um, I was wondering if you had any questions for me. Well, that's a great question. Uh, flipping, flipping the table. Um, I guess since you since you read the full book, I guess my yeah. question for you would be: if there were any moments, particularly that maybe we didn't talk about, that stuck out to you from from the book. There were a lot. I mean, because I, I highlighted so much more. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of silly, but I was curious. I'm, I'm heavier than I've ever been. So when I was reading the part about how you guys were preparing for the half marathon, like that's like, sorry, I wish I could have a prof- more profound bit. No, I, you but know, you, I yeah. Go yeah, ahead. but you know, in all seriousness, the um the thing, uh, maybe it's just because I read it the most recently and it's later in the book. But some of those experience that, experiences that you and Muhammad had once you moved here um, really struck me that how blind we are to our own prejudices um, and how different people uh, deal with that, um, how some are better than others. I think some are healing and, and are fountains of love and grace, and then others are only exacerbating it. And sometimes we're... We, we do either one, like on any given day, I could be, you know, I could be making things worse and then I'll have a good day and 
probably be um, maybe may adding just one drop of tikkun olam of uh, of making healing the world kind of a thing. So yeah, in all seriousness, that 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 was that part really struck struck me. Um, you describing you know growing up in in Florida, some somewhat rural Florida. You know, there was one th uh, thing I was curious about. Toward the end of the book, you did say that um, you had experience. You went through a time when uh, your your priest uh, dissed Harry Potter, and you're like, forget this whole religion thing, you know. <laughs> but but later in life, it sounded like you had come to uh, uh, a more faith. I, I don't know if that's how you describe it, but I was curious about that. Yeah, uh, you, you described it very well. Uh, again, I tried to sprinkle some moments of comedic relief into the book, and that was, I think, one of them. Uh, I, much to my parents' dismay, but yes, uh, my priest uh, said that we shouldn't read Harry Potter, and I was like, well, I'm <laughs> I'm done with you. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, you know, I had went uh, when I was a when I studied abroad in Egypt as a college student. I had went on a trip through uh, several Middle Eastern countries: Jordan, Lebanon, and then uh, Jerusalem. And I, as I think I described, I was like, this was nothing more than a, a touristic adventure. It was kind of the boxed set of Amman, Beirut, and Jerusalem in one trip. And we we happened to be there for well, it was both Easter and Passover actually that weekend. And I went with a friend to uh, a church for Easter Mass, and it was sort of in that moment that I I felt for probably the first time in my life. I mean, I was pretty young at the time, but first time in my life that I, I really believed in something bigger. And so it wasn't necessarily that I went back to the Harry Potter hating priest after that, but it was certainly the fact that I felt like there was something higher than myself. And you know, Jerusalem's a very special place for a lot of people around the world, which is why there's so much uh, fighting over it. But it's also a really special and unique place. And I I found it to be just a very spiritual experience. And that was not why I went to begin uh, at mm. the beginning of the trip. That That's profound. That can be interesting. That, yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but yeah, that's, that's profound. And I, I love when that happens. I think of things often um, when you have one of those types of experiences, there's something that's both hard. You're, you're participating in something transcendent on a horizontal line as well as a vertical line. And what I mean is I talk often about the rituals of Judaism. Um, I, I grew up Jewish, but I became a Christian or going to church and participating in communion. Um, there's something horizontal about that, meaning that this is a family of, of people, a, a, a church, if you will, a, a community of people that have been practicing these things and telling these stories in these symbolic ways for thousands of years now. And I am participating in that story now. So that's the heart or my family. You know, I know my family story. So there's a horizontal aspect of that. But then there's these moments when the um, C.S. Lewis refers to it, I think the word is numinous, when there's something um, vertical that's speaking to us, um, a longing for something, a, a question, uh, existential question um, that simply cannot be answered uh, uh, by the material, if you will. So um, the horizontal and the vertical intersect and we have these profound life-changing mo moments, but uh, not to get too too into it, but that's... no, that's such a great way. That's such a great way of thinking about it. I've never thought about it like that. I think, um, you know, I, th I think for me, just seeing the layers of religious denominations, all praying together to, you know, 
you could argue different people or different gods, but they were all praying together in the same place. And I, I found that to be very profound um, and, and very spiritual, even though of course it, it comes with a lot of conflict, but I yeah. think there's something almost uh, maybe uh, my priest would probably get mad at me for using this word, but magical actually about seeing people that say they believe such different things, but all still praying sort of together, but separately. Yeah. I, I just thought there was something very special about being in Jerusalem and seeing that in real time. Fantastic. So Catherine Manfrey, how can we find you online and where can we find your wonderful book? So you can find me at, uh, well, CatherineManfrey.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Catherine Manfrey. And you can find my book on Amazon. It is not there yet. And uh, if you read it and you like it, please also leave a review. It'd be most appreciated. And <laughs> so I just realized when you said that it is not there yet. The book is there, but it's called the, not there yet. <laughs> the book is there. The book is there. But the title is not there yet. I know this has actually caused an immense amount of confusion when people have asked me questions about the book. That's not awesome. something I considered when I titled it, but that is that is the name of it. Not there yet. You're talking to a man who has a lot of title trouble. I got the name of my podcast, Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. It takes me a half hour before I can even say hello. <laughs> what pocket? <laughs> you know, so anyway, but at least it says what, what it's all about. So for sure. Well, Catherine, this has been an absolute pleasure. I hope it's not the last time that we get to hang out. I get, to, I hope I get to meet your husband uh, at some point. And you guys are in the D.C. area, right? We're in the D.C. area. Yep, we are in the district. I'll definitely let you know when I'm in the area. And uh, it'd be fun to hang out in person. That would be great. And for our listeners, as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's www.politicsandreligion.us, www.politicsandreligion.us. And please consider subscribing through the patron app or on our, uh, the patron app on our site or through Patreon. We would really appreciate your support. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D, politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Hey.